0: The RTI Time Machine. Today's time traveler is John Van Triest, and the destination: Taipei, February 27, 1947. February 28, 228, is a date that haunts Taiwan's past. On this date, 70 years ago, a seething public anger at the government exploded into the open. The government responded with a devastating rampage. The exact death toll remains unknown, but the number is in the tens of thousands. Amid the hysteria, many more simply disappeared, held in undisclosed locations. Though the violence is commonly known as the 228 Incident in Taiwan, there are those who have another name for it, the 228 Massacre. By the time the killing and the abduction subsided, a generation had been thoroughly shaken. Through the decades of martial law that followed, 228 became Taiwan's unspeakable secret. Writer Yang Zhenlong is deeply familiar with the silent suffering the violence left behind. Though his family alone had three victims, no one breathed a word about what had happened until well after he'd become an adult no one not even his father who survived today he is executive director of the Memorial Foundation of 228 an organization that works to secure justice and uncover the truth behind the massacre this week he'll be talking with us about the events of 1947 a story his generation grew up knowing nothing about then next week he'll be back with us again to tell us about the wounds that remain the progress that has been made to address them and what still has to be done.
1: The 228
0: massacre happened during a period of big transitions for Taiwan. For 50 years, the island had been a Japanese colony. There had been pressure to assimilate to Japanese ways and finally coercion to fight for Japan in World War II. Japan's defeat at the end of the war brought an end to this colonial rule. The Allies had decided that Taiwan would be given to the Republic of China, and in 1945, it was. After 50 years, Taiwan's rulers, like most of the people who lived on the island, would be ethnic Chinese once again. Mr. Yang says that at first, Taiwan had high hopes about the handover. They were soon dashed. He says that over 50 years of Japanese rule, Taiwan had moved in its own direction. The attitude of government officials, all of them brought in from outside Taiwan, only deepened the divide. He says that power and resources were kept away from local Taiwanese and concentrated in the hands of new arrivals like these from across the Taiwan Strait. The new people in charge looked down on Taiwan's people and treated them with disrespect. Suddenly, the old Japanese colonial rule didn't seem half bad. Add to that a stew of other problems, including economic troubles and indiscipline among soldiers, and the stage was set for a showdown. The grievances festered for over a year until February 27, 1947, the day a spark was lit that set off the entire powder keg. It began outside the Tianma Tea House in Taipei, where agents of the government monopoly bureau had managed to corner an illegal cigarette vendor. The government had a strict monopoly on tobacco, but the black market was a lifeline for many people, a way to survive the difficult times. That didn't matter to the agents. The woman was beaten. Bystanders noticed, and they got angry. In the confrontation that followed. One of the agents fired a shot that fatally wounded a bystander. It wasn't long until the whole of Taipei knew what had happened. A wave of protests began, and it spread. The following day, after attacking the Monopoly Bureau, protesters massed in front of the provincial executive office. Shots were fired indiscriminately into the crowd, killing several and adding more fuel to public fury. Soon, the anger had spread beyond
1: Taipei. Through
0: radio broadcasts, through word of mouth, through any means possible, the protesters told the rest of the island about what had happened in Taipei. They told anyone who would listen to rise up. People responded to the call, and fighting broke out in different areas. It wasn't just the people versus the government, either. The eruption of tensions between local people and new Chinese arrivals led to even more violence. Both groups suffered. Something had to be done, and a committee was set up with the stated goal of resolving the situation. <laughs> in the beginning mr young says people had only had one demand hand over those responsible for the killings but the events of the past few days had by now tapped deep into a roiling anger that had built up over more than a year soon other demands were brought up reform change eventually the list of demands brought up reached 32 But this was not a government that did reform or change. Still, officials were in a bind. They understood that there weren't enough troops on Taiwan at the time to put down this wave of anger. So, the government stalled. Mr. Yang says it pretended to listen to the people's concerns and acted as though the petitions they sent mattered. The ruse continued until enough troops could be diverted to the island. When they landed on March 8th, The game was up. Soldiers tore through swaths of the island, killing and looting along the way. Arrests and disappearances could also come at any time. (laughs) Mr. Yang says that some of the terror was random and unplanned. Some of it, though, was systematic. Taiwan's local-born elite were among the targets. That meant Mr. Yang's family. His grandfather was a city councilor in Keelung, the northern port city near Taipei where the family lived. Mr. Yang's father was a doctor. And one of his uncles was an elementary school teacher. Teaching, medicine, politics, all good targets as far as the government was concerned. <laughs> Mr. Yang's grandfather went missing. There was no trace of him for around three months. He was only released after writing a confession for some imagined crime.
1: uh...
0: As a doctor, Mr. Yang's father was seen as an even more valuable target. He was arrested three times in a row, first by the military, then by the police, and finally by the military police. Each time, he was held for what was essentially a ransom. The amount demanded was enormous, but Mr. Yang says the family paid out each time for his father's release. (laughs) His uncle was simply tied to a stone slab with two others and thrown into Keelung Harbor. These events were never spoken about again in the family home. Mr. Yang grew up in the post-228 world, where many things were not discussed. The years after 228 were especially dangerous. The Chinese Civil War had ended in defeat for the government, and it had lost everything but Taiwan and some other smaller islands. Chinese refugees were fleeing to Taiwan in large numbers. Martial law was declared. And in the paranoia of these years, alleged communists and enemies of the state were rounded up and killed. A new era of horrors, the white terror period, had begun. With fear of the government high and the weight of the trauma still heavy on his family, Mr. Yang grew up unaware of anything. As he puts it, growing up, 228 was only ever a number. Next week, we'll find out how Mr. Yang finally learned about his family's suffering, and how he came to be involved in the quest for justice. We'll also hear his critique of how work to set the historical record straight has been handled, and we'll get his views on what Taiwan can learn from the healing process that other countries have been through. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me then.